So in order to uh, stream this on the web and uh, archive it and whatnot, uh, um, you have to agree each individual uh, to be what we call FOIA, Freedom of Inf Information and Privacy. So, uh, um, well, basically, I, I would imagine that by taking the course, you had some idea that it involved this type of technology. Um, and uh, if you're not willing to sign it, it's kind of awkward because you can see the cameras just show show uh, everybody. So I'm hoping uh, that uh, um, everybody will voluntarily agree to uh, take part in this process. Of course, in order to talk to somebody in, the, in another place through this technology, uh, they can see you. And for that matter, anybody who, who cares to tune in uh, can see you. So, uh, so you need to give your permission to be seen. Uh, the other side of it is you get to see people coming in and, and, and uh, see each other. Yeah. I'll go right to the site right now. So I'll, I'll distribute these. And uh, I don't know, are people back? Did I scare half the room away? <clears throat> so, uh, <clears throat> okay, part of uh, this is developed in a sort of ad hoc fashion. We do something, and then after we did a few of the classes, and it occurred to us, well, we're taping them. Why not uh, uh, archive the material? <clears throat> so uh, this site, globalizationstudies.org, uh, has taken on a life of its own now. It just got put up on, in a new format uh, today. So we had it on a uh, information management system called PostNuke, and now it's on something called WordPress. So this is a kind of work in progress, and uh, uh, I hope that uh, you start to feel sort of part of the community uh, that this site um, sits amongst. Uh, we call the community around this site the Axis of Enlightenment. Um, the term Axis of Enlightenment, when George Bush talked about the Axis of Evil, remember Iraq and Iran and North Korea were the Axis of Evil. So the response was, uh, well, what about having a, an Axis of Enlightenment uh, where we can uh, talk about the world issues? And, and uh, so... Uh, Let's just uh, see what we've got there. Okay, so as we go down, these are some of the uh, more interesting classes. Now this one. When we began doing this, they didn't call it uh, video iPod, but... Uh, so it's uh, October the 6th. 2004, and welcome to an offering of the course. So this was a 
This is Ireland. He's doing his uh, PhD in the history of prohibited war propaganda. And he's a Palestinian um, graduate student involved in many of uh, the Palestinian uh, human rights organizations. So, so the... This is a, a real favorite of mine, this class here. This is Digil al-Rakabi. She was born in Fallujah. She spent her late teenage years in a refugee camp in Saudi Arabia. She was pushed up from her territory by the army of Saddam Hussein. And uh, it turns out she's a, a very... Um, organized and compelling speaker. So, as I said, there were some things that blew out our expectations of our work or work. Um, we had to actually follow the I'm not going to uh, play big sections of this, but this is, this is what we're doing, what we've done up until this point. Remembering Tucker. Tucker Gomberg was at the first globalization studies classes. classes, fresh material like we're doing tonight. We're taping this. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm introducing you to the uh, Globalization Studies site. And so we've archived all our classes, and uh, or a good number of them. So I'm just introducing you to, to it. Uh, so um, this, is, this sits there uh, for you to look at any time. Uh, and and uh, this is this is essentially what we're we're producing more fresh material. Uh, is that uh, yeah? So video archives. So these are the classes up to date. But it's it's a, it's a I really haven't seen a site quite like it. And uh, I don't know, I have a picture of uh, someday uh, we'll do Gorilla University and we'll have, uh, you know, we'll have lectures from all over the world and, and, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be a, a venue to, to uh, uh, create this axis of enlightenment. Uh, uh, so uh, 
axis of enlightenment. So you get, so you're so I'm not this isn't like a replacement for Actually, she is standing in Mount Royal College. I'm I'm in Mount Royal College. At one point, I was. A lot of times, I do the class from the distant site. Actually, I like to be with the invited guests at the distant site. So, so we're in connection. You see us. You know, we see you, and it's just like we're we're in the the same uh, the same place. Uh, we're essentially bending time and space, and, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce this now as one of the uh, ideas uh, that uh, I keep coming back to um, with respect to you know how do we think about globalization? What, what, what is it about? What is going on in the process of globalization? Well, it was said. Well, Spain came to. It came to the Western Hemisphere. The Western Hemisphere didn't come to Spain. So obviously there was a technological innovation. There was uh, uh, a lot of innovation with uh, um, equipment for navigation. So it all has to do with uh, uh, looking, you know, being able to measure the movement of the planets and uh, uh, being able to uh, measure the movement of, of, of the moon and the sun and the sun in relationship to places on Earth. So. So these technological breakthroughs uh, enable, uh, for instance, the oceans which had divided humanity suddenly with navigation and uh, um, boat building techniques, uh, suddenly the oceans become highways to connect people and join people. And uh, it changes, uh, you know, in, in a sense, the, uh, the makeup of time. Uh, in the early 20th century, Albert Einstein came up with the theory of relativity. And uh, basically, uh, the idea that time and space are fixed was shattered. In fact, it turns out that time moves at different speeds depending on the movement of, of your platform in the universe. So as you approach the speed of light, time slows down. So the, the something that you would have assumed would be a great constant time, you know, and, and inventing standard time in the late 1800s was a huge achievement to make the place, the globe, a more integrated, coherent place. You know, once you have a standard time system. But then in the early 20th century, suddenly the physicists break the news to us: no, time is actually not. Uh, fixed. Space can be uh, bent. Uh, time can be expanded. Uh, time can be accelerated, uh, slowed down. Um, there are constants in the universe. The constants, it turns out, the constant, it turns out, is the speed of light. I mean, who would have imagined, of all the things, you know, the speed of light is the great constant. So as, as I'm coming to think about this, uh, the uh, shattering of the idea of time as a constant breaks all our security in, in, in relationship to you know, knowledge, human beings' relationship to knowledge. If time isn't a fixed thing, what else isn't a fixed thing? 
So the theory of relativity is matched by Franz Boas, the famous anthropologist in the early 20th century. He comes up with what he calls cultural relativism. He says, you know, you can't say this society is Stone Age and that society is Space Age and this society is ahead of that society. And, uh, you've got to live in a, in a culture and understand a culture from within and every culture has its own internal coherence that makes sense to the people within that culture. So the word culture was in large measure to, uh, to confront this concept of race, which had taken on enormous proportions in the 19th century, that, that uh, society, that the global community is divided into races, and these races are very, very different and can be measured in a hierarchical way, uh, you know, higher and lower, bigger brain sizes than, and smaller brain sizes. You know, you had craniologists, uh, social scientists, whose, whose business was to, to uh, measure brain sizes and uh, make up theories about hierarchies of people. So along comes Franz Boas and says, For, forget all of that. Uh, and he comes up with the idea of cultural relativism. And culture becomes a way to kind of combat the idea of race. So this, this notion that uh, time, in fact, can be changed, can be, in a sense, accelerated. Anybody who's, you probably haven't had the experience of going from snail mail to email. I don't know if any of you have, I guess, do you remember a time when people communicated by, you know, writing stuff on paper and you send it and, uh, I mean, right there is a change in human relationship to time, right? A technology change that, relates, that changes our relationship to time. Instead of your granny in uh, England, you know, taking three weeks to send her a letter and then she responds three weeks later, uh, you can communicate with her tonight, you know, three times, you know, instantaneously. It, it changes everything. Imagine if you're running an empire and you, you're sending your, your directives from the colonial office to India, and it takes a month to get by ship, you know, just a letter to, to go by ship to get there. And then, you know, by the time it's taken into account and some response is sent back, it's months and months and months. So when you can communicate instantly, you know, it, it changes the nature of human relationships. So, so this, uh, relationship to time, you know, globalization, the great driving force of globalization are these innovations in communications, whether it be navigation technology, you know, airplanes, telegraphs, cross-ocean cables, all of these things seem to accelerate our ability to, to communicate. And now, you know, the, the intensity of interactions that the wired portion of humanity can have. It, it, it's incredible now, and it's unprecedented. So when we use this technology and we talk to somebody in another place in the world, for instance, and we can see them, they can see us. In fact, there's a 10-second delay often, eh? so we're not actually seeing them in fully real time. Uh, but we're actually, you know, seeing, dealing with the concept of sort of bending space and fooling around with time. And to me, that's, you know, that, that's a really major thing to come to grips with. Um, 
So, um, so this is uh, Mohammed El Masri. He's president of the Canadian Islamic Congress. So he's at, at the University of Waterloo. Here we are in uh, Lethbridge, or, and, and I was at the time, this is a three-way, I was at the time in uh, Sudbury, and he was in a, he's my mentor, named Kanhai. So when I'm traveling, I can often introduce uh, my students to you know, the people I've worked with. Um, Mohammed El Masri uh, has been a, a great uh, participant in this. Uh, remembering Tucker, that's the one I would have showed here. No. This is the one. No. Tucker was uh, uh, Tucker Gomberg. He was a former uh, city councillor in Edmonton, an Edmonton city councillor. He uh, we did an event, a pro Kyoto event. He was uh, he's a conservationist. Uh, he came to town for this rally that we did uh, in uh, City Hall. Uh, and, you know, it seems important to show that in Alberta there is support for the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, at the time, Ralph Klein was being very vocal, saying, uh, you know, criticizing the Kyoto approach and, and the science behind it. And uh, so we had a rally at uh, City Hall. At that point, uh, Tucker said, I'm going to put globalization since 1492 on the World Wide Web. He was talking about using this technology. And uh, it turned out he couldn't do it, but it turned out we did at the university have the technology to do it. Uh, he, uh, at that year, he followed Ralph Klein to New York. Uh, New York, uh, Ralph Klein was negotiating different things in in uh, New York. He came back to Alberta. He locked himself in Ralph Klein's vault to call attention to uh, what he called the hidden document, the fact that the government of Alberta had done a research report in 1990 which said that CO2 emissions could be reduced, it would be good for the economy, and of course it completely contradicted everything Ralph Klein was, was saying at the time. So uh, Tucker Gomberg uh, locked himself in uh, Ralph Klein's vault in its constituency office, phoned the media. It was a media stunt to try to call attention to this point he was trying to raise. The video I was just about to show you, he made when he got out of prison, just the moment he got out of prison to, to talk about uh, why he'd done it, what had happened uh, when he was in prison. They put him in a cell with a big swastika. He talked quite a bit about that. He's Jewish, and of course... It was upsetting to him to be in a in a cell with a swastika. He tried to scratch it out. He was charged with uh, destroying public property, destroying a swastika in an Alberta jail. Suppose <clears throat> anyway, uh, Tucker uh, is a kind of a, uh, quite a brilliant fellow. He was he was uh, first class. He was down in Iraq, in uh, the, in New York in the first protest against the U.S. Uh, uh, the possibility that the U.S. might invade Iraq 
you know, we saw early voices in, in Lethbridge of uh, people in New York talking about uh, talking about that situation. Tooker, uh, you know, very tragically committed suicide uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, so uh, I, I do like to always uh, pay uh, tribute to him and uh, and uh, what he uh, stood for. Uh, I met Tooker in. Uh, I met his wife after I got out of uh, prison in Orsonville uh, Penitentiary in Quebec City during the free trade area of the Americas. Uh, the, there was a summit of, world, of, of, of Western Hemisphere leaders, the leaders of the 34 countries. There were big uh, protest demonstrations. There was maybe 20, 30,000 Canadian post-secondary students that got down there. Um, I went down with uh, the Action Club. Um, um, I picked up my son in uh, Thunder Bay, and it was it was a great event. It was uh, really the flower of Canadian um, post-secondary students. I think people who were really give gave a shit, you know, are concerned, well informed, care about the future of their country, care about the future of the world, actually trying to do something about it trying to make their mark, trying to understand, trying to learn. You know, we, we went uh, 3,000 miles across the country to uh, uh, Quebec City. <clears throat> there were 25,000 billets in Quebec City. In other words, the local population of Quebec City made 25,000 spaces available. So we were being uh, uh, embraced by, you know, the youth of, uh, of Quebec, many of whom are dedicated to the independence of Quebec. But here they were, you know, siding against their own government, which was an independent government, making room for us from Alberta. And uh, uh, they cleared out the uh, federal penitentiary, Orsonville Penitentiary, to make room, 600 places available for uh, the protesters. And sure enough, some of us uh, were uh, honored with a, a place in the, in the uh, uh, Orsonville Penitentiary. Uh, the way uh, I thought of it was that the protest had to do with uh, an assertion that people didn't want to be excluded. If you're going to make a free trade area of the Americas, if you're going to change the geopolitical map of the Western Hemisphere and change the nature of our commercial and political relations, you better do so in a way that you include lots of different kinds of voices and lots of different kinds of constituencies. And you don't just do it with a view to advancing uh, the interests of a few very large corporations, that there's a lot more at stake involving a lot of different constituencies. So um, in, in my uh, sort of urban legend, in my own fantasy of how globalization studies got going, I sort of think of it, you know, starting in Orsonville Penitentiary. Anyway, when I got out of uh, uh, jail, when I went back to uh, Toronto, I wasn't charged with anything. There was uh, Tooker with his uh, video camera plugged into a computer, you know, and he's uh, making a show about what had happened in Quebec City, and I'd never seen this. This is 2001. Eh? Like, film is something, it's not the same as computers, eh? But... That's obviously converging. So, uh, so that's how that relationship uh, 
developed, and then, you know, I remember Tooker in the first class was, you know, going all around with the camera, and, and uh, quite intrusive. But in any case, uh, this axis of enlightenment and the people that we've involved so far, uh, you can get a feel for that. Now, This is an interest. So you asked, how do we get? How do you? How do you uh, get on the stream? So you just click this uh, at Wednesdays at at the time, and and uh, and you get on the on the on the stream. Um, here's a uh, cluster map. So we we've, we've been sort of down. We haven't been very active. Still, uh, so we get hits. from uh, India, from China. This must be Moscow. That's a uh, map archive. So we go to here. Okay. Uh, anyway, I can't make it expand, but that was right after it was uh, reviewed this class was reviewed on Boeing, Boeing. Any of you ever see the site Boeing, Boeing by Cory Doctorow? Cory Doctorow is a Canadian. Anyway, it just got swarmed. They, uh, um, people go to this site Boeing, Boeing, and, and Cory Doctorow says, you know, check this out, check that out. So there is this uh, instantaneous element of, of, the, uh, of the web here. So... Um, Maybe some of you will uh, will get uh, interested enough to uh, contribute to this or feel uh, part of this uh, community. Uh, so we've just changed the format. Anyway, that's that's uh, globalizationstudies.org. Uh, <clears throat> so um, let me uh, conclude. Uh, Break a little early, although we're supposed to go till uh, eight eight fifty. The first class. Um, I like to um, reflect on the news of the day, and uh, so when you say, you know, what what is the course going to be about? I'm I'm giving trying to give you a, a sense of the kind of subjects that we're going to going to be tackling, uh, but I like to. Uh, uh, have a combination between a kind of plan and also the ability to uh, respond to the world as it's unfolding. Actually, I've, I found this over over years in Native American studies. Uh, my background is in history. I have a PhD in history from the University of Toronto. And uh, in Native American studies, I find myself talking about historical subjects. But... Uh, couldn't quite carry people along very easily. It's as if, you know, you need to start with something in the here and now and then work backwards into, well, what are the historical uh, roots of this? I also found this with uh, newspapers. And I like to do journalism. I have uh, done a lot of it in the past. I was, um, for a time there, I was writing frequently in the Globe and Mail. But I found that uh, if you can look at something right now or something that's just about to happen and then give the historical background to it, 
you can carry people along with you much more if you did, than if you just talk about history without without uh, framing it in uh, in terms of uh, recent developments. So so um, here is uh, this week's New York Times. So it's September 3rd, 2006. And uh, so opium harvests at record levels in Afghanistan, alarming statistics, resurgence of Taliban and waning of government control are blamed. So uh, right now, Canada has a big involvement in Afghanistan. And uh, since uh, the United States backed the Northern Alliance to displace the Taliban and put in place, I think I can say it fairly, a puppet regime that is favorable to U.S. interests, the uh, opium trade, the opium come out of, coming out of Afghanistan has increased exponentially. The Taliban were being quite successful, actually, in reducing the opium trade. So the, the control of drugs is a big part of imperial globalization. Uh, how did the Occident, Britain, the United States, France, Portugal, Spain, how did they break into China? Well, the drug trade essentially was the was the vulnerable point uh, and uh, the, the Chinese had their own war on drugs. They were trying to regulate uh, the drug trade, uh, try to prohibit the opium trade and uh, uh, the uh, uh, British eventually um, asserted themselves militarily to open the opium trade which uh, was supplied by the East India Company. And uh, so uh, the Chinese, of course, uh, have historically made beautiful things, porcelain, silk, uh, products that there's been a great demand for in Europe. In what, and yet, what did the Europeans have that the Chinese wanted? From the Chinese point of view, the Europeans were kind of backward barbarians. Uh, and uh, uh, so there was really nothing that uh, the Chinese wanted in return for the product. So they would take silver, they would take gold. And uh, this was an, an anathema to the mercantile system. So, so uh, and by the mercantile system, I mean the, the theory of trade in those days was you can't let hard currency, gold or silver, leave your system. You, you undermine your strength, your economic strength, if you pay for something in you know, silver. It's better that you trade some product. So opium was the product that it turns out um, you know, there, there, there could be a great market for, a huge market for. And uh, so it follows that uh, uh, this control of the opium trade you know, becomes a major part of the politics of empire by the time the United States is trying to replace France in Vietnam and uh, essentially uh, prevent communism from taking over Southeast Asia, uh, a big part of their politics is to support 
the drug lords in, in Laos. And uh, so um, how can I prove this? So uh, here is a recent book, Drug, Oil, and War, Drugs, Oil, and War. Uh, the work is by Peter Dale Scott. The subtitle is The United States in Afghanistan, Colombia, and Indochina. And uh, it's published in 2003. Um, Frank Scott, F.R. Scott, is uh, was the dean of law at McGill University. He's, if you study the history of uh, the struggle for the protection of human rights in Canada, you very quickly come into encounter with Frank Scott, who was a very gifted and compassionate um, individual. So this is uh, F.R. Scott's son. And uh, so he lays out the uh, history of drugs in Afghanistan, Colombia, and, and uh, Indochina. And uh, so I won't go into a long description of it, but uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the bibliography, McCoy's Alfred M. Alfred W. McCoy's uh, The Politics of Heroin, CIA Complicity in the Global Drug Trade um, and the War on Drugs. So uh, it's a very well-documented uh, fact now that the CIA was deeply involved in uh, the uh, heroin trade. Uh, in fact, there's a movie about it with... Uh, Mel Gibson, Air America, they own the, uh, the uh, airline company, Air America. Um, so, so this uh, aspect of control of the drug trade has been an old, it's an old uh, element of imperial control. It certainly was a big part of the British Empire. Uh, the, the East India Company uh, smuggled a lot of opium into uh, into China and worked through New England. Uh, uh, a lot of the big fortunes in New England come from this opium trade um, um, to China. So, um, so it, it's interesting news, and there it is on the front of the uh, New York Times right now, that uh, the result of this new regime coming into play in Afghanistan is that the drugs are increasing. The amount of drugs being produced are increasing. Now, what happens to those drugs when uh, when they go into the market? Do they get targeted towards different groups? Um, you know, the, the, the uh, drugs can be very demoralizing. And if you're trying to build a, a colonial structure, the fact that the people who you are hurting and oppressing may be demoralized by drug addiction, that can actually serve your agenda. Uh, and, you know, some would say that, in fact, the contamination of, you know, America with drugs, it's going into certain communities, the, the very communities that might, if they were organized, you know, have, have the greatest cause of grievance and might be the most uh, mobilized to oppose that grievance. 
So let's uh, look a little bit at Afghanistan here. Now, <clears throat> Adbusters, I think, is a, is a really important uh, publication. The idea being to use the imagery of advertising to kind of uh, satirize advertising, um, culture jamming, they sometimes call it, um, um, to uh, embrace the idea that there's many ways to convey positions, ideas, uh, not just text, not just articulated words, that, that imagery is very powerful in our society and that you can shift this in imagery in, uh, in different ways. So that's the kind of spirit of, of Adbusters. Mujahideen, holy warriors, fraught Soviet aggression in Afghanistan with help from CIA, uh, 1979. I expect that is Osama bin Laden right there. But in any case, uh, this uh, Mujahideen was backed by the CIA to oppose a Soviet uh, puppet regime in Afghanistan. Okay. So, <clears throat> Afghanistan. One of the uh, very important uh, developments. There's the Soviet Union as it was before uh, 1991. And you can see that a big part of the Soviet Union is now these independent republics. Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkestan. This is this Caspian Sea area is the area of the most uh, unexploited oil riches uh, on Earth. So the independence of these republics is, is very important. They're all called Stan. Afghanistan is uh, has been the site of uh, a lot of history of clashes of imperialism between Russian imperialism and British imperialism. Sometimes this was referred to as the, the great game. Uh, every country, every polity that's tried to dominate Afghanistan invariably runs into uh, harsh resistance, uh, just like Canada is uh, facing, uh, the Canadians are facing in the Kandahar region. So that photograph I just showed uh, speaks to the reality that Afghanistan was a, the government of Afghanistan was a puppet regime of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union backed up uh, a government, a communist government in Afghanistan. Of course, uh, communism uh, is uh, atheistic. The whole idea is that uh, religion, 
said Karl Marx, you know, is the opiate of the people. Religion uh, is the way that the ruling class, according to communist idea, ideology, uh, justify the, the situation, they say, to the workers, to the poor. You know, just be content, you're going to get your award eventually in heaven. Uh, so, um, the United States has been very aggressive in siding with religious uh, constituencies in the Cold War because religious constituencies are, constituencies are automatically hostile to um, communism because communism is atheistic. Although I must say, Cuba was really fascinating in that it's clearly a mixture of Roman Catholic uh, background and communist background. Like, you know, the communists were intelligent enough to say they're not going to displace the, the religion of the people. So Roman Catholicism continues in a fairly comfortable uh, place in, in, uh, in Cuba. But in any case, uh, the, um, the Taliban, uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, Osama bin Laden, all of this uh, development was backed by the CIA for U.S. purposes, the purposes of opposing the Soviet Empire, opposing communism, and uh, and and now we can see that uh, uh, with uh, a U.S. puppet regime in place, rather than a Soviet puppet regime in place, you know the drug trade is 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 increasing out of, out of that part of the world. So. Uh, I had a, another, uh, yeah, just, I'll just, before I leave Adbusters, I'll go to the editorial page. That's right, we can review. Editorial page of the of the uh, New York Times. <clears throat> I find a, an article all about globalization and culture, and uh, I was possibly going to go into that, but let me uh, forego that for the time being, and I'll go to the article beside it. Ronald Rumsfeld dance with the Nazis. So the article basically speaks of uh, here's Neville Chamberlain Neville Chamberlain was Prime Minister of Britain in 1938 he tried to appease Adolf Hitler to uh, make peace with Adolf Hitler uh, this appeasement by Neville Chamberlain has become a kind of a, a, a very often asserted image to say, well, you're going to be like Neville Chamberlain, you're going to appease Saddam Hussein, you're going to appease tyranny, you're going to look away from, from fascism. Um, so the editorial... speaks of... Uh, 
Donald Rumsfeld stands uh, with the Nazis. So the Bush regime has taken to referring to something called Islamofascism and saying if you don't support the war in Iraq, you're like those who would appease the Nazis. So th this is this is the new um, public relations position or uh, effort to manipulate public opinion. Uh, and uh, the authors here. Um, since Hitler was photographed warmly shaking, uh, warmly shaking Neville Chamberlain's hand in Munich in 1938, the only image that comes close to matching it in epical, uh, epic, oh, there's the word, epical obsequiousness is the December 1983 photograph of Mr. Rumsfeld himself in Baghdad, warmly shaking hands, the hand of Saddam Hussein in full fascist regalia. Is the sense, uh, is the defense secretary so self-deluded that he thought no one would remember a picture so easily Googled on the web? Or worse, is he just too shameless to care? But Rumsfeld didn't go to Baghdad in 1983 to tour the museum. Uh, then a private citizen, he had been dispatched as an emissary by the Reagan administration, which sought to align itself with Iraq and the Iran-Iraq war. Um, so we all remember that Iran and Iraq were in um, dire conflict, and the U.S. sided with Iraq. Saddam was already a notorious thug well before Rumsfeld's trip. Amnesty International had reported the dictator's use of torture, meaning beating, burning, sexual abuse, and the infliction of uh, electric shocks. Uh, <coughs> Mr. Rumsfeld also suffers from intellectual confusion about terrorism. He might uh, not have appeased Al-Qaeda, but he certainly enabled it. So there's that history. Like Chamber, Chamberlain, he didn't recognize the severity of the looming threat until it was too late. So, um, so another picture from... Uh, here's the picture of uh, Rumsfeld with Saddam Hussein. So that's the Defense Secretary of the United States shaking hands with, well, the, the personification of uh, the devil, I guess. You, you've all seen South Park, uh, uh, the, the episode about the war with Canada and, uh, and uh, the devil and Saddam Hussein are gay lovers. Um, <laughs> anyway, there he is. Personification of evil, and you can, and that's uh, you know this week's uh, New York Times headline is riffing on the fact that you know it, it's fine to identify the Saddam the regime of Saddam Hussein as equivalent to that of Hitler, but hey Rumsfeld, remember that you were friends with the, this individual, and uh, um, so I was. Uh, I just wanted to press that button, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Which button did you... Go ahead, press it. I didn't know what it did. Yeah, let's just uh, finish it. Uh, press the button and see what happens. No. Yeah, you're going to... There you go. Oh, the delay. Sweet. Yeah. I want TV. 
Yeah, only TV up until now was just, you know, in a country, right? CBC or, you know, American Broadcasting Corporation or BBC. But this is, uh, when this is running, this is technically all over the world. And there's never been a, a vehicle like this. And uh, not to say that, you know, there's going to be the world beating down, the, you know, what the world is going to be rushing to, to see... Uh, University of Lethbridge's uh, money, culture, and globalization. Although, you know, you go to the cluster map and you can see, yeah, it's it's making a mark in the world. They're going and seeing it in China and Japan. So, um, so now you're mic'd. Eh? When you press that, you're mic'd, and you can talk to uh, whoever is at, you know at the other end. Right now, there's uh, we're just uh, confined to this room. So. Um, I think I've covered uh, covered all the, uh, the business that we need to cover, and uh, I really want to see you here in this place. That uh, the logic of the way it's set up uh, it works far better if we're if we've got one nub. I'd like to see you know at some, at some point we'd have a, a nub in. Uh, Shanghai, we'd have a nub in uh, Sydney, Australia, we'd have a nub, you know, in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. Uh, the way I see it, uh, this is the this is the way we're going to do democracy in the future. I mean, as as we speak, as we think about these issues, we've got to move beyond the level of the nation state and start thinking of larger uh, ways of expressing our political will and opinions and learning about one another. Uh, what a wonderful time to live when we have this available to us, and uh, you know it's 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 not stopping here. I mean, it's obviously uh, just early days in something moving towards uh, uh, destinations and ways of uh, creating new forms of community uh, along lines that. Uh, may enable us to address some of these profound issues and problems and dilemmas we face as a human as a human species and as a human species we need to get to know each other better we need to uh, learn about one another's culture we need to be respectful of our differences and we also have to uh, uh, appreciate and deal with the reality that we are mostly the same no matter where we're from that culture isn't fixed, that we're all, you know, that we all have many identities converging in our, in our single individuals, yet alone whole communities of people trying to interact and relate. We have different identities in our own mind. We wear different hats in different situations. So many of these questions of how communities and cultural groups are to communicate and relate. We're actually living it out in our own in our own thought processes and in, in, in trying to uh, understand how we relate to history and where we fit in to uh, patterns of history. So uh, here we go. Week one, 12 to go. See you next week. <laughs>